Welcome to The Resonance, the podcast about energy and sustainability from Alpha Energy Group. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Alpha Energy Group podcast. I'm Jeremy Nicholson, Corporate Affairs Officer at Alpha, and I'm joined for my annual catch-up on the year by my colleague John Hall, Alpha's chairman, a veteran of the air energy markets and, and an expert in, in his field. And John, you know, before we consider what might be in store in the year ahead, it's been an extraordinarily turbulent year, hasn't it, for energy? And, and what's your reflections on what we've been through? Well, when we talk about a crisis, I mean, we've actually been through crises before, I mean, of a different nature here. But if I was sort of thinking back to 1973, we had a crisis, 1979, 1986, 1990, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. That was then followed up 13 years later by the US-led invasion of Iraq. And we then moved on to sort of more domestic matters. And we had the uh, British energy going bust in 2008 and then bailed out by EDF. We've experienced the crises, you know, many times over over recent years and we normally we recover from them we move on but they serve to remind us that these things do happen we have to be prepared for them and to accept the consequences where we are today this is probably far more serious than any crisis we've experienced before uh, i think particularly because it's also on the back of the pandemic and for the uk we are also struggling with brexit so we take all of this into account then we come back to um, net zero and we think well actually which route are we going to take on where are we going to get to and what are we going to handle first well i think that's a really interesting question because the assumption was you know fossil fuels are quite cheap possibly they need to be made more expensive with carbon pricing and taxes and so on to help renewables and others compete but because energy is quite cheap we can afford to make this transition uh, of course we're in a rather different situation now uh, renewables and others can compete quite well against gas at the current astonishing prices you know as we're recording this gas is trading at around 250 pence a therm about five times what you'd expect in the winter and who knows what it'll be by the time people listen to this podcast so you know that sort of scale of volatility it's been hitting the energy suppliers hasn't it with a record number going bust but it's got implications for business consumers how on earth do consumers um, hedge those kind of risks well when you start looking at say the, the the price of gas you mentioned it just now if you go back to April of this year and looking for say the price of gas in April of next year it would have cost you 45 pence a therm now some may have balked with that and said we don't accept that price it's far too high if you look at it today for April of next year you're talking about 322 pence a therm that is the, the, the level of magnitude. It's, it's, it's up seven times since April of this year. If you go to electricity, you're looking at five times the price at £270 a megawatt hour. Now, what is significant about that is that when EDF proposed Hinkley, the new power station we hope to see in the next five or six years coming on stream, the strike price for that was set at 1995. And people were saying, well, how on earth are we going to pay that by 2025? Well, Today, the price is at 270 pounds a megawatt hour. So when we're looking ahead now, it, it has become incredibly serious for industry and commerce. And again, I don't know how buyers of energy will actually cope with this level of cost. 
Well, it's been interesting talking to my European colleagues, indeed former colleagues in energy intensive industries about this, particularly in Brussels and elsewhere in Europe, because we've had sort of fertilizer producers and others that use natural gas as a feedstock closing down their production um, because there's not enough of a margin to remain competitive. They can make more money selling their gas back to the market than they can manufacturing their product. And if that happens in other sectors as well, it's going to have a profound impact on UK and European manufacturing manufacturing, isn't it? I mean, there comes a price when, sure, there's demand response out there, but what point does that become demand destruction when businesses can no longer carry on? Well, I said a few years ago when the uh, price of oil got to $147 a barrel and people talking about 200, I said, it's not going to happen because no one can afford to pay it. And here we are now, with a, that was really a trebling of the oil price, which today is around about $74, $75 a barrel. So where we have a sevenfold increase on gas and a fivefold increase on electricity, I mean, quite honestly, if people can't budget for that and they can't take it and pass those costs on to their customers, which they're going to have to do, whether commercially or domestically, the world is going to have to wake up to a changing situation over the next two to three years at least. I don't know how the gas situation is going to be resolved over the next year or two, if at all. Well, I think that's the big concern, isn't it? Because as we speak, uh, during periods of low wind, gas is providing close to 60% of the UK's power. Now, obviously, in the long term, we'd like to, to move away from that, have more renewables and nuclear on the system, maybe hydrogen storage and more battery storage and other things to help balance it too. But when you have low wind for weeks at a time, it's gas that keeps the power on. And if we're moving away from gas for heating and, and trying to electrify that, then the demand for power will be even greater and greater still with electrification of transport. So, you know, in, during that transition, how is Europe going to keep going unless it develops its own gas resources as well as importing? And do you think perhaps the eye's been taken off the ball here, perhaps looking a bit too far ahead to a world without fossil fuels is a small matter of how we get to there rather from here, isn't there? There is a massive gap between what we need today in terms of fossil fuels and how we're going to get to an environmentally friendly um, time when we're running on renewables. And again, I don't know if renewables will ever actually get there in terms of supplying all our needs. But when you talk about the electrification of vehicles, I listened to a presentation the other day where someone said that the actual grid the size of the UK grid would need to be trebled to cope with it. If you're going to treble the grid, what are you going to do to generation capacity? Where is it going to come from? Now, we talk about renewables a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit of a power station there, another one there. We talk about a wind farm, you know, firing up and uh, powering up 50,000 homes. We have a population of 65 million people. You know, the number of homes to be covered, I don't know how many there are, but across the country is really massive and particularly if we're going to electrify the transportation system where will this generation capacity come from who will actually manage it and again i suppose initially who will actually pay for it so you look across europe now you've got some nuclear capacity germany went away from nuclear and went into coal which i think it's still into coal perhaps there's going to be a transformation now we're going to see a revival in nuclear 
uh, certainly from a low carbon perspective, that would be a good thing, not as an alternative to renewables, but complementary with renewables, because, you know, I don't think any one of these technologies is going to do it on its own. And even if we maximise the nuclear and renewable build out over the next few years, it's going to take, you know, a decade or two to approach net zero. And even that's going to be relatively expensive. And to see, you know, countries like Germany closing four gigawatts of perfectly operational nuclear capacity this winter as part of their nuclear phase out, which will mean necessarily burning more coal lignite and, and gas in that country, that can't be the right way to go, even if in the long run they wish to be more dependent on renewables. And I wonder whether there's, there's an element of fanciful thinking here, albeit in a desirable direction. We had the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, which I think were perhaps more constructive than many gave credit for. But equally, commitments were made, perhaps not really realising the full impact of the energy price crisis and, and the potential for change in politics in America and elsewhere. And I wonder what your reflections are on that. There was a year in report published recently and it said that the world's wealthiest 10% accounts for 50% of the uh, worldwide carbon footprint. And to get them to change when there's no sort of financial incentive to do so is going to be difficult. COP was great, but you have to look at it politically. Biden is doing what he can to move away from fossil fuels. On, you know, on the one hand, he's trying to move away from fossil fuels, then calling up OPEC and saying, can I have some more oil, please? Because he's got a massive problem with the gasoline prices in the US. You also have the big issue now that if Trump is re-elected in 2024, he will certainly reverse everything Biden is trying to do and go back into coal. And we're going to go backwards for the next four years. That takes us six years away. The Chinese are absolutely set on, on not upsetting their output. And really, if it means burning coal as opposed to renewables, they've got to keep the economy running and they'll do that at any cost. And they have not given a commitment to giving up on coal. The Japanese, in the meantime, although they were quite keen to sign up at COP26, uh, have gone back home and let it be known to the industry, nothing's going to change in the short term. So some of the larger nations are, are saying one thing on the front and then on the background are now sort of holding back on it because they don't know how they're going to make the transition. And I think when we listen to some of the targets that are being set for sort of 2040, 2050, there is no real plan as to how it's going to happen. And again, the people who are making those decisions and making the commitments today for what will happen then won't be around to see it through anyway. So it then follows on through someone at a later date is going to have to come up with a plan to see us through to, uh, to net carbon zero. I'm sure that's right, and, and also recognising that gas is part of the solution here, even if unabated gas isn't where we want to end up uh, in 30 years' time. But it does facilitate moving away from coal in power generation. Indeed, more coal-fired power stations were closed under Trump's regime as a result of very, very competitive low-priced gas in America than would have been achieved under Obama's coal phase-down plan. And, and so, you know, economics helps here, just as it did help drive um, coal off the power system in the UK. So competitive gas prices uh, and keeping those gas taps flowing should be seen as part of the solution and, and helping to accommodate intermittent renewables. So that's one point I would say. And, and secondly, energy efficiency tends to be overlooked when energy prices are low. Well, they're certainly not low now. And I wonder, you know, is the more do you think that governments could be doing to help businesses and others uh, reduce their energy consumption or, or make more efficient use of it? 
Yeah, I, I agree with you totally. I think that, you know, there is, you know, governments would like to do more. As I said earlier, we're in a pandemic at the moment. We've got Brexit issues coming up now for the end of the year. There's quite a lot going on. The government is split. We have sort of, we're almost getting a divisive community set up now in, in government, rather like in America. It's not working too well together. And I think in reality, you know, to start talking about what we're going to do for governments, you know, putting more incentive in there, it's going to be difficult for them. They're talking about heat pumps, you know, making heat pumps cheaper, but still you're talking about an awful lot of money to put a heat pump in. You know, not every unit can take a heat pump. So it, it's really very, very difficult to know what governments can do other than tax the price any harder than they have done with environmental taxes. But there's no point in doing that now because the price is so high anyway, it won't make much of a difference. Well, I think that's right. It's almost academic. I, mean, I remember the arguments about whether consumers could sustain 15 or even 30 euros a, a tonne of carbon in the European market and the equivalent prices in the UK one now. And of course, we've gone well beyond that. And even if those carbon prices weren't there, the inherent market price of, of power and gas is so high um, that it almost makes that irrelevant. But I just wonder, you know, perhaps some of the policy costs that have been loaded onto electricity in the UK and some other parts of Europe Maybe that's counterproductive if we're trying to electrify heat. So if governments are looking to a way of, uh, you know, ameliorating some of the cost, maybe paying for some of that through general taxation rather than levies on bills might be a way to go, do you think? Yeah, it's probably. I mean, you, you could move the levy from gas and put it onto electricity. It's still astronomical, whatever people have to. The fundamental issue now is that, you know, will domestic householders be able to afford to pay prices five, six, seven times greater than they are today? The answer is there'll be an absolute uproar on this. And, you know, people talk about nationalisation. They don't, people don't really understand that it's a commodity market that, you know, where the price comes from. It's not a question of somebody saying, this is what I've got, this is what I want to sell it for. It's what it costs to produce it. And you mentioned the figure of 60% earlier. I mean, supposedly 60% of the uh, UK's gas is imported. I had thought it would be a little bit higher than that. But even so, it is still a large proportion of our gas is imported. And on, and on that basis, we have no control over it. And until there is some way of moving away from gas, moving away from fossil fuels, uh, in the short term, I think we're going to be hit by these prices. Now, unless the government comes up with some wonderful plan to subsidise energy prices, I cannot see any respite over the next two years. Well, I think one of the dangers that I've, I can foresee, and let's hope it doesn't affect the UK too, some European countries are taking, or the governments are taking the view that they need to be much more interventionist in, than they already are in the energy markets, having arguably caused or at least exacerbated some of the problems themselves. And once start, governments start getting involved like that and trying to subsidise consumption in order to protect consumers, it makes a mess of markets very, very quickly. And it's difficult to see how you know independent suppliers or an efficient wholesale market model can survive under those circumstances and if governments want to take responsibility for all of this then fine but I think they'll find it rather challenging to put all the uh, you know all, all the costs of decarbonisation onto the national you know balance sheets through you know treasury uh, taxation and so on it's going to be very problematic for them so I just wonder how you know the the two things the the ambition on the environment which is laudable and the desire to keep costs down can be married and the only way I can th think of it working is, is by stimulating more competition and more innovation in this area to drive down the cost of decarbonisation. Because let's face it, 
when low carbon technologies are cheaper than the the alternatives, it doesn't need government intervention to sell it to the rest of us, does it? No, I mean, it's interesting. I've mentioned the pandemic a couple of times. And when you look back at the um, where we were, say, 18 months ago, there were no vaccines available. And then, you know, the companies started to, who, who could produce a vaccine, started to look at the market and say, hey, this is big, you know, there's something there for us. And uh, one scientist I, I came across said that, you know, he'd followed, you know, the HIV market for 20 years. And after a couple of months of following this market, I'll say, hey, this is a big one, we need to go for it. And this is why overnight, they managed to produce vaccines where normally they take 15 to 20 years to produce a vaccine. So if there is a need to do something, those that can provide uh, an answer will, will respond very quickly indeed. So there is a massive incentive now for anyone that can do anything in terms of generating uh, low carbon energy as such to, or in terms of technical support or whatever, to actually get in there and do something as of now. Well, I'm sure that's right. And some people might say, well, that's a very optimistic view. I think it's a realistic view. You know, people do respond to incentives. Business responds to incentives. And if there's an opportunity to make money out of providing alternatives to fossil fuels, which are currently very highly priced, and into the bargain meeting government's environmental targets, why wouldn't you know investors pile into those areas? Not all of them will be successful. We only need some of them to be to transform the market. And so as a last reflection, you know, none of us knows exactly what 2022 uh, holds in store. Hopefully it's good news in terms of the end of the pandemic and moving towards a more endemic situation with COVID that we can cope with. But, you know, we've got inflationary headwinds, there's debt problems, we've got potential security supply issues. Can we expect high prices and high volatility to continue during 2022? Or do you think there might be some glimmer of hope on, on the immediate horizon? We have an issue with the geopolitical situation in Russia is not going to change overnight. And I really cannot see an, you know, an answer to that one. The Americans for some time have been saying to the Europeans, buy your gas from someone else other than Russia. There is no one else. Um, and I don't quite know where Europe is supposed to get its gas from. Until that situation is resolved, and it could be difficult, I can't see an answer to it. But one thing I can say is that time and time again, we hear the transition will be delivered by technology. And it's technology that will step in to make a difference. And I think over the next year, anyone that can generate some enthusiasm or do something to bring in technology to make a difference, that will work. Well, John, I hope you're right. I suspect you are. Rather like me, you're perhaps a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. There are things we can't change immediately, uh, but in the longer term, we certainly can. And as you mentioned with vaccines, sometimes things happen a lot faster uh, than we might predict. So thank you very much for your insights and your, and your reflections. Let's hope there's better news to come as we go through 2022. And we look forward to you listening to other podcasts from us and our colleagues over the course of the new year. <laughs>